I'll just pick up where we left off before the uh, before you sit with Deborah's question about some things about Shenzhen's method. But first, let me just sort of put what Shenzhen's doing into uh, into the context of what you've heard me talk about. Um, how many of you people are not familiar at all with Shenzhen Young's meditation method? Weren't there on Sunday? Uh, okay. So, well, what Shenzhen does is he, he uses a, an approach to meditation which uh, he doesn't use a uh, fixed object like the sensations of the breath, like I do. Um, instead, he has you choose a certain uh, sphere of kinds of objects to attend to. And uh, he takes nama and rupa and divides them up into different spaces. And so, of course, the, the, the rupa part's pretty straightforward. It's, it's uh, touch and also can be uh, if you're, it can be sound, it can be, uh, if you have your eyes open, it can be visual, it could potentially even include uh, taste and smell. Of course, when you're sitting with your eyes closed in a quiet space, it's mainly, uh, Rupa is mainly just touch and the occasional sound. And then he takes the Nama part of it, the mind part of it, and divides it up into... Uh, talk space, that's the voice that you hear in your mind, and image space, and that's the images that arise. So, for example, you might sit down and meditate on image and talk space. So, in other words, what you try to do then is to let, you know, you're not choosing what what you're going to think about or how you're going to think about it, you're just planning to be aware of it. And so if, if there are verbal thoughts taking place, you just label that as talk. And if there are images arising, you label that as image. And uh, if both are arising, then you focus on one or the other. And if neither one is there, you just call it rest. Uh, and so this is a little broader than focusing on the sensations of your breath because you're allowing whatever forms of of verbal or visual thinking might happen to be taking place, you allow them to arise. The challenge is to remember what you're doing and to continue to apply the appropriate label. And if you're doing a practice properly, then uh, uh, every second or so, uh, you're going to be uh, applying a label of uh, talk, image, or rest depending on whether you're hearing... Or touch. Or What's that? Or, and then he had touch and feel. Well, these, these are the other spaces. You know, you can add to these other spaces. Touch is the, is the primary rupa space. That's any body sensation. Now, the feel part of it, and that was the part that you mm-hmm. weren't very clear about. Uh, the feel part of it has to do with the particular kind of body sensations that 
we that are associated with emotions in the moment. And feel occupies a really interesting place because the inner talk and the inner images are those are very clearly kinds of mental processes that are ways of thinking, right? And the touch, all those sensations in your body, you know, pressure, touch, pain, anything else, those are very, very clearly physical, uh, of a physical nature, physical sensation. The feel is, a, is an interesting thing because we usually think of emotions as being mental. And that was my first, you know, first reaction when uh, Shinzen explained his uh, his system was, well, wait a minute, you know, emotions aren't just physical sensations. Uh, but he's trying to make this, he, he and done a wonderful job of figuring out how, how this can all be presented and practiced in a form that anybody can get a hold of right away. Um, and I've come to really appreciate it. Um, and feeling emotion is one that's really difficult for people to deal with. Uh, in my own case, yeah, the early part of my life was very difficult in uh, particular kinds of ways. But I ended up being, most of the time, completely unaware of my emotions. You know, I couldn't stand the question of somebody asking me how I feel. Because as far as I was concerned, you know, uh, sometimes there was anger and sometimes there was lust, but most of the time it was just neutral. Although, of course, that wasn't true at all, right? But all that I was aware of ever as my emotions were those who were really strong. I was very much cut off from my emotions. Even though somebody else could look at my body language and my face, and they would know far more about my emotional state than I would. And then back in the in the eighties, uh, when it was uh, there were a lot of these workshops to help people, personal growth kind of workshops, help you get in touch with yourself, uh, getting in touch with your emotional being, your emotional body, and stuff like that. And those were all very. Those were very useful for me because they did help to break down a lot of the barriers that I created in my mind that prevented me from being aware of my own emotions. But the way they did that and the way almost any Buddhist system of meditation does that, when we start talking about emotions, the first instruction is how does it make you feel? What are the sensations in your body? Direct your attention to your body. Get into your body. Find out where where it feels, where you feel it, how you feel it, what does it feel like, how does it change. And this is what Shinzen has focused in on this, is that, uh, that this is where you want to go. And when it comes to emotional states, th- this is the place to go. Because what happens otherwise uh, and probably a lot of you know this. If you first turn to examining your emotions as being mental things, then they are very entangled 
with the stories that you tell in your mind about your emotions and the images that arise in association with that and the memories. And so it is so messed up and tangled up that you get lost in it and you have no hope really of practicing mindfulness of your emotions. But if you start with the feelings in your body, this is the place to get a handle on it and get a really clear handle on on, on your feelings and on the fact that there is a constant, you know, like I say, I used to think most of the time I was in a neutral state. But the truth is, now I realize that that I and all of us are continuously, there's a kind of emotional flavor to every part of our experience. It's never really absent. It's stronger uh, sometimes than others, definitely. But very, very rarely, uh, in normal circumstances, do we have the state that uh, Shinzen labels as peace. But of course, you don't know that at first. Seems like, hey, there's a lot of peace in here. But you're just not really seeing it. But if you examine the touch space and the feel space, then after a while, you learn to discriminate those two and you start to discover how much feeling is going on and how the feeling is being conditioned by the images and the thoughts and the other things that come up in your mind. But uh, so, so these these are these are the entryways into getting a grasp on what's going on in your mind is to divide it up into verbal thinking and visual imagery that arises as a kind of thinking and bodily sensations in form of touch, and then those bodily sensations that are very definitely of an emotional nature. And anybody can do this, and anybody can, can begin to disentangle these things from each other, and that's what makes them so difficult normally to, to deal with, and the reason that we get, in, instead of transcending them, we get totally enmeshed in them. So I'll go to Deborah's. You're saying that what you found is that it was very difficult to distinguish touch and feel. Well, yeah, because as soon as I have touch, there comes a whole other part of that. It goes into the Vedanas and then goes in Sankar. Anyway, so that it becomes, it's not just touch. Or mm-hmm. very rarely is it just neutral. Touch, neutral. Usually it's touch, oh, I don't like that, that's painful. So there's a version. So to me that's an emotion, mm-hmm. that it's feel. So I go touch, feel, touch, feel, touch, feel. Mm-hmm. Well, so, and I don't think yeah. that's what uh, Shinzen has. Well, uh, okay, there can be a certain amount of touch, feel, touch, feel, touch, feel going on. But basically what you want to do is to start out deliberately, you know, as he said, when there's more than one thing, you choose one to focus on. So you deliberately focus on the touch, you know, and then at the point that it seems appropriate, maybe because the feeling point uh, component is very strong, you shift the attention to the feeling. Uh, and this helps to make it really clear. So uh, a lot of, the, most, most of the time, one is going to be 
very distinctly stronger than the other. And, and you know, so uh, right now you have all kinds of touch sensations in your body. That it's true, they, there may be some component of pleasant or unpleasant mm-hmm. to them, but it is it is insignificant, right? So if you if that if, if that is what your awareness goes to, you can simply label that touch, and you can disregard the the subtle, the indistinct, the relatively unimportant aspect of feel, unless there's some reason why you really want to notice that. I thought you had those in different spaces anyway. They, Touch they, and feel. Yeah. I thought you had those in two separate Those spaces. are two different spaces, but so what you, you do is you do way. these meditations. Sorry, maybe <laughs> I, I'm not as good at explaining his system as he is. He, he's done it many times. Okay, you can practice each of these spaces by itself. You can do only touch space, you can do only feel space, you can do only image space, you can do only talk space, and you could do the ones associated with the other uh, senses as well. But most, most of the time you're doing some combination, so you might do image and talk space together, or you might do touch and feel space together, or you might do image, talk, and feel space together. That's a really that's a really useful one, is to do those three together. So yeah, each one is a distinct space. Well, I, didn't think, I didn't think he grouped them, though. I thought he had image, talk, and feel in one space, and then sounds, sight, and touch in another space. I didn't think he intermingled he, feel and touch. He, yes, he does intermingle them. Yes. Okay, because I, I thought he had focus yeah. in and focus out. And yes, that's right. And when and, and that's, that's absolutely right. Usually, if you were on a retreat, he'd start you off with doing, uh, he'd acquaint you with each of these by itself and then he'd start doing them in pairs. And then he would do uh, uh, the image, talk, and feel, and then uh, touch, sound, so forth. And then he would start, he'd eventually, you can do them in any combination that seems appropriate at the time. So that's, uh, that's just one of the ways of using this method that's very versatile. But the combination of touch and feel, this this is a very uh, important and useful one. Uh, and as a matter of fact, you've already done this because uh, in in every meditation system that I know of, when you have pain in the body, the instruction you're given is to, uh, at some point when it's severe enough, uh, take the pain itself as an object. Okay. And when you do that, um, what's, what's really interesting about Shinzen's approach is he gives you a conceptual way to disentangle it. Uh, if you examine, if you're sitting here and your knee starts to ache and then you put your attention on your knee, after a while of examination of that, it will differentiate into uh, the physical sensations and the unpleasantness, the pain that you're experiencing. And you can distinguish between the two of these. Uh, Shinzen's giving you a conceptual tool so you can do that right away. Go to the pain, find the touch part, and find the feel part. Right? And so, uh, and, and of course, whether, whether you do it with Shinzen's instructions or whether it happens as a part of, of you know, following the instruction to examine the pain objectively, uh, determine uh, 
its location, its intensity, whether it moves, whether it increases and decreases, and so on and so forth, um, which is another way of approaching it. You'll come to the same place. At some point, you'll begin to distinguish the sensation as sensation and the unpleasantness and the, the painfulness of it as being, uh, as, as being two different things. And when you do that, you come to that place where you can focus on, as Shinzen would say, the touch aspect of it, and you'll cease to be aware of the feeling part of it. And this pain in your knee is now just a sensation. Sometimes it will go away. Most importantly, examining pain in this way, being aware of these different things that interact, allows you to understand that really, I, I think, one, one of the best things that I think Shinsen has given us is because he likes to put everything in mathematical terms, <laughs> is the formula that suffering equals pain times resistance. Oh. <laughs> I like this other formula too. Well, yes, and I mean, but that, that's, that's the heart of it, and that's what we're talking about here. But the other things that are entangled with that which you, when you discover them, is that, that there's not only the uh, touch sensation and the feeling pain, there's all the talking that you do to yourself about it and the images that arise. And all of these things reinforce it just tremendously. And if you practice insight meditation and you, uh, according to the standard instructions rather than Shinzen's, you're told that if the pain becomes, it reaches a point that you know that you're going to move, then uh, what you want to do is move very mindfully, very deliberately, decide when you're going to move, decide how you're going to move, and once the intention has arisen and it's clear, mindfully kind of carry out the movement. And what you'll notice, of course, is that as soon as that part of your mind says, okay, this is it. I, I, I know I'm going to have to move. At that point, the, 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 the discursive part of your thinking immediately magnifies the intensity of the pain. Because now that there is an end in sight, you can't wait to get to it. And when you see that, then you realize how these things interact with each other. You know, as soon as, you know, and, and they are, uh, and as Shinzen likes to express it, I think, I think it's quite accurate, they, they tend to multiply. And if you can get to the point where they only add, then that's really, really good. <laughs> then it makes them really manageable. But when they're in the point where they multiply, and, you know, and you can see, okay, it's just the sensation. Then, you know, then there's the pain and the unpleasantness, and then there's the idea. You know, the thought comes through your mind. Oh, I don't think I can stand this any longer. All of a sudden, that thought has, you know, a, it, it's a big multiplier in that. But, uh, and that's just one example. But if we look in the at, at, at feel the relations, relationship of feel and touch. Um, a kind of feel, you know, when there's grief and you have a really constricted feeling yeah. in, in your in your throat and your chest, and you know that's 
that's definitely not touch, right? That's definitely feel. There's no question about that at all. It's not always that clear-cut. And um, so a lot of the time, the touch sensations, or, or the things that you might at first identify as touch, actually have a large feel component to them. And this is, uh, you can come to discover these emotions through the practice of mindfulness of examining touch and labeling it, and then after a while you start to recognize that, oh, well, I've been calling that touch, but, you know, it's really feel. And, and then it starts to become clearer and clearer, and then other things the same way. So you start to be able to, to identify these things more clearly that way. So what you were talking about is, yeah, they were still entangled in your mind, touch and feel, touch and feel, touch and feel. Uh, yeah, because I don't, I'm really hard-pressed to have any kind of sensation of touch that is not accompanied by some some uh, some effective reaction, well, which is an emotion. That is that is pretty normal. But it sounds like what you're saying is you you have maybe a, a stronger than normal, stronger than average uh, affective component to any touch. Is that? Um, I don't know, or whether it's like I went spent three three weeks in Burma studying uh, Vedna, nothing but Vedna, mm-hmm. for yeah. hours and hours all day long. And so it's like anything that's physical that arises is accompanied by what I think Shinzen means when he says feel. Well, and, and that is a fact. I'm not denying that. That, that is absolutely true. So I was just trying to find out whether you experience the affective part of it more strongly than the average person. Instead, I think what you're telling me is that you have been trained to be aware of it and recognize it. Yeah, I think okay. that's what it is. Good. That's what it is, and that's you see. That's where uh, we all kind. Of, when you start practicing mindfulness of feelings, vedana. That's that's what. The, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, the word vedana uh, translated as feeling, but specifically it means pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Those are the three kinds of things that we call feeling or vedana. And. Uh, of course, it's, I think, logically self-evident that every experience, every mental or physical object of consciousness is associated with one of these three feelings, because there isn't a fourth possibility, right? It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Okay. When you first start practicing mindfulness of Wigna, you will begin from that place of well, a whole, you know, most of my experience is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. But the more you examine it, you start finding, ah, oh, well, there's a lot of subtle pleasant and unpleasant that you really weren't aware of. The other thing that you come to recognize, one thing your mind does, whenever there is a sensation that arises, just like that, there is a identification of it, a concept some sort of conceptual identification of it happens almost instantaneously. And the sensation by itself can have a completely different weight in that than the conceptualization that follows. And when you practice after all, you start to recognize this as well. Uh, 
So somebody who spent three weeks in Burma practicing mindfulness of Vedana will say, well, as you have. Well, there's always feelings there. How can you? <laughs> and mostly pain. I guess, I don't know, it's just, it seems to me that uh, physical sensation comes up in the form of, it draws your attention in the form of discomfort or pain. At least this is my experience. And what I learned it was that the tendency is to contract around that pain, to yes. contract around it. And so then you just notice that that's what you're doing, and after a while, you don't do anything. You just don't move, and you just stay there. And after a while, the whole thing just undoes. Mm -hmm. It's really cool, yeah. but it's really painful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, but that is that's that is the universal experience. It doesn't happen every time. But if you just mindfully observe an unpleasant sensation, at some point it will just it, it basically what happens is it dissolves into its components, and then they become minuscule additive components instead of you know macroscopic multiplicative components. Um, but in, in to practice, you know, having the kind of awareness you do, to, to practice Simpson's method is all the only part of the instruction that you need to remember is uh, is it's it's not at all uncommon. It's the norm for there to be multiple things from multiple spaces present at once. That is the norm. It's to it's to either focus on what's most pronounced or strongest, or if there happen to be two that seem to be equally pronounced, choose one of them, and then after a while go to the other one. Yeah. Okay. So, rather than, yeah, I can see, if you feel like, well, you know, I've got to, I've got to label both of them, and, and I have to go back and forth, and you drive yourself crazy. Yeah. yeah. And you sit there and say, I don't see the point in this, I think I'll do something different. <laughs> No, I say, I don't see the point in this. That just means that I haven't figured it out, or it hasn't come clear to me yet. Right. It will. That's right. Another yeah. five years. Uh, well, <laughs> or another five minutes. <laughs> or in another five Or another minutes. lifetime, maybe. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, Shinsen's approach to this, you know, by having, you know, when you're looking at, at, at the thoughts that are arising, are, are, and once again, the way he presents this is important, is what you're, you're looking at the obvious things. You're looking at the things that stand out, or you're looking at what's at the surface. And you'll see at, the, at that sort of surface level of what's going on in your mind, it's most of it either talk or image. Right? Now, people are always going to say, uh, yeah, but you know, there's other. I have other kinds of thoughts that aren't in, in words or aren't in images, and that's true. That's not the point. The point is what dominates, and if you want to get a handle on it and you want to start seeing what's going on in your mind, just let's let's just take those great big obvious ones and focus on them to start with, and then after you get really familiar with those, then yes, you're going to become even more clearly aware of the other ways in which your mind 
functions and the other ways in which it processes information. For example, it's very interesting, this relationship between thinking and touch and feel, is that, I don't know, some of you may have noticed, but there is a kind of thinking that takes place that precedes uh, bodily actions that we can mm-hmm. describe as kinesthetic thinking. Mm-hmm. Right? You know what I mean? That you. It just as an image forms in your mind or, as, or as, as there's a conversation going on in your mind associated with bodily actions. Now, that is very closely related to image because if you think about yourself doing something, you'll probably have some image of it, but you'll also have that kinesthetic component of it too. Um, what happens in the normal course of things is we have kinesthetic thoughts that precede our actions. And actually this is something that, you know, can be easily picked up with scientific instruments, you know, so if, if you're wired up properly, the, uh, uh, the experimenter or researcher can, can, knows what you're going to do before you do. It's just a very interesting thing if you think about it. Um, is that after intention that you have that? What's that? Is that after intention that you have those kinesthetic thoughts? Or is it intention? Well, it, the, or it, uh, well the, the interesting thing about it is it's a little bit difficult to, to uh, decipher, but the, the conscious intention that we have definitely comes later on in the process. The the parts of your the, the same parts of your brain that are, are going to be active when you make the movement already show some activity before you even become conscious of the intention. Okay. Right. Now the relationship between the conscious intention and the unconscious intention that's that's a really interesting thing and. Uh, the, the conscious intention does precede the actual action, but it's delayed behind this unconscious uh, activity, which is really interesting in terms of the theory of, of the mind and the self, which I talked to you about before, well, which we can get into again. But, but and it's very very relevant to that. It's very very significant. Uh, but anyway, I, what I was starting out to say is that there's a kind of kinesthetic thinking that takes place and it's also related to feel uh, you the intention to move is often uh, related to uh, an emotional state and sometimes especially what is it like when you have the urge to move your leg and discover that something obstructing it and you can't move it a strong emotional reaction right you know that's sort of a, a mini version of what some people experience as claustrophobia and things like that. So there's all kinds of mental processes that you might object to and say, well, you know, this simple classification of, of image, talk, feeling doesn't cover everything. And Shenzhen doesn't claim that it does, but he's saying if you start out with those, then you become really aware of all the others that are taking place. So it's a really very, very useful tool, I think, I find. 
You said that, that once once there's the intent to move, that's when the pain multiplies. Is is it when the unconscious decides you want to move that the pain starts? Actually, what it is, it's it is a thought process. There's a whole variety of thought processes that can make the pain intensify. And um, it's not the intention to move. It's, it is actually the thought that uh, the thought that you're going to move, and it's uh, yeah. And and as soon as you have the thought that you're that you're going to move and relieve the pain, then there is this very strong impatience, you know, and the pain intensifies. And the same thing happens if you have a pain and you have the thought. You know, I don't think I can stand this anymore. Say you've got a migraine headache and there's nothing you can move to make it stop. Mm-hmm. Every time you think to yourself, uh, my God, I don't think I can actually stand this any longer, it hurts worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is the way these thoughts interact with what's already going on and they just they, they make it worse. So that's, that's the only point we were getting at there. Mm-hmm. You said something earlier that I thought was interesting, um, comparing your system with with um, Shenzhen's. Mm-hmm. You said that um, yours is going for stream entry, and his is for a mainstream entry. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> <laughs> Can you repeat the question? Can I repeat the question? Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Debbie asked me if I could. I elaborate on uh, what Shinzen said when, when he said that uh, that in my teaching I am uh, focusing on stream entry and in his teaching he's focusing on mainstream entry. Um, he is he's putting tremendous energy and effort into finding ways to uh, simple ways that everybody can understand to practice meditation in a way that will begin to give them insight into the way their minds work and uh, and how this way of working in their mind is responsible for so much of what they experience in their lives, so many of the problems. Um, these insights, they're not super mundane insights. They're mundane insights. But if you if you pursue them, if you continue in that pursuit, you you will uh, you will experience the super mundane insights as well. But his emphasis is on getting people going, giving them systems they can follow, you know, and getting uh, getting them to where they experience some of the real results in their life of, uh, of a mindfulness practice. You know, that they're better able to deal with pain, they're better able to deal with their emotions and, and emotional states. So it's not that his practice won't eventually lead to stream entry, it's just where his emphasis is. And the same thing, it's, I'm also trying to teach meditation in a way that many people can be successful at it, but yeah, my emphasis, my focus is 
I, I want you to get to the place where you can experience these super mundane insights. I want you to get to the place where you can understand directly, really, what, what emptiness is and what it means. And I want you to get to the place where you can understand what, what it means to say that you have no self. And then I want you to be able to experience the truth of those directly in your meditation practice and in your daily life. Uh, those are the super mundane insights uh, when, you, when you can experience them directly. And then what follows naturally and inevitably from that is super mundane, the super mundane insight into the dissatisfactoriness, the suffering that comes from clinging to that which is empty on behalf of that which does not exist. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So. so it's just the difference of I'm starting out, you know, I'm looking at that point called stream entry and in all the things I'm teaching, I it, it's what's guiding me is how can I get a person to that point? And I guess Shenzhen's much more open-armed. He's gathering everybody. So, okay, here's something we can all do. Everybody, close your eyes now. <laughs> Focus on that space between your ears and listen to talk. <laughs> and and I, I, we both have the same objective. Uh, on, on Sunday, you remember what his happy thought was? Yeah. Yeah, right. And uh, that's my happy thought, too. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, I... I uh, well, I, 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 I feel like this, and Shenzhen does too, that it's the, it's, the, uh, it's the only thing that's going to save our species is to, uh, is if awakening becomes common enough that it changes the, uh, the standards by which our entire society operates. This doesn't mean necessarily, I mean, yeah, really the goal is to have 100% everybody become awakened. That's the ideal. But just to survive, we've got to have enough people awakened that we shift out of the space of being a society based, you know, blatantly in greed and hatred. Greed, hatred, and lust. I mean, North American society, turn on the TV and, boy, there's no question, oh, yeah, this is this. This is the this is the greed, hatred, lust realm. Yep. <laughs> yes. Funny little question, but I just need a clarification. Um, so when you use the words mundane and super mundane. Yes. Because I'm not sure I understood what you just said. Are, are you saying that mundane is another word for inconsequential? No, mundane means worldly. It means ordinary. It means the way that we usually see things. And so it accepts it accepts the ordinary view, which is that we uh, that the world is more or less real the way it perceives to be, and we are, are uh, separate uh, psychophysical entities with a self-like nature functioning within it. And that uh, if everything comes together just right, we'll be happy. 
But the problem is all those things that keep happening to us that make us mm -hmm. unhappy. And if we just put enough money into the healthcare system, <laughs> we won't ever get sick or die. That's right. I like that. Yeah. Just put enough money in. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, that's a mundane. And so, uh, a mundane insight is an insight that is still, to some degree or another, based on that perception. So, you can have all kinds of wonderful insights into, for example, you can have wonderful insights into the nature of pain and the way it works, and you know, suffering equals uh, uh, pain times resistance, and you can learn to manage and deal with your pain. But that still, that is not super mundane. Super mundane is when you realize, you know, it, it's the extension of that to realizing that your your entire reality is dependent upon the activity of your mind. And whatever degree of happiness or unhappiness you experience is dependent on what's happening in your mind, not what, not some world out there and what it's doing to you. The, the first is still based in the illusion. That's right. The first is still based in the illusion. And the second is breaking through the illusion. That's what makes it super mundane, is it's gone beyond, it's broken through the illusion to seeing the, the, the underlying truth. Are you saying supra or super? Supra. 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 Super mundane, even more illusory. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, it's just a, I've been trying to think of the right word for a while, and I think I just have it. There is a way. There is a way that these teachings can be misunderstood. That well. Reality just exists in our mind anyway. So if we convince ourselves, you know, uh, then then uh, then we can live in whatever reality we succeed and can succeed in convincing ourselves. Of, uh, you know, and that, that's what we might call the super mundane. <laughs> a better illusion. Yeah, a better illusion. Yeah, a better illusion. Yeah. An ideal illusion. <laughs> Yeah, so. Yeah. Anyone else have any comments or questions? Things on your mind? Change the subject or keep it the same? So when in meditation, usually more on retreat when I'm more still, I was so during this during that day long, I was trying to be aware of talk, and mm -hmm. I don't usually have talk unless I'm going into some kind of like at least partially into a fantasy where I'm in dialogue with somebody. It doesn't feel like talk. Um, it feels so, but I have when I'm just kind of almost narrating my experience unintentionally, there's an element where it feels kind of like talk, but it's not language. Mm -hmm. So it, it is more conceptual. And I feel like when I have that, I'm only able to be, um, there's like a, a, a layering where, um, like there's the point where I can, I can observe it directly, that kind of um, sub-vocal kind of talk. Mm -hmm. And then there's an even subtler form of that sub-vocal talk, or maybe it's just when it gets quieter that I can only observe, 
like in working memory. I can only observe, observe it in retrospect. And I'm wondering if, I've just been kind of curious about that idea in general of doing meditation, observing mental phenomena in retrospect versus in real time, whether that's always the case, um, and whether there's certain mental phenomena, this is not going to be easy to do that, but whether there's certain mental phenomena that you can only observe in retrospect, but I'm guessing that's not the case, that ultimately you can observe anything in your mind and you get still enough in real time, just from the point of the, the observer. Um, but I guess, I guess my question was, um, I guess my question is, is there certain types of mental phenomena that you can only observe in retrospect, like right afterwards, and what's the value in that? Maybe if you could talk more about that kind of, that kind of memory element in, in awareness. Okay, the question is, are there certain kinds of mental phenomena that you can only experience in retrospect? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it all depends on what you mean by experience in the ultimate sense. Uh, you know, if I... I say that because uh, if we go to speaking of... Uh, the experience that you have when the process of mental construction ceases and you have an experience of experience of nirvana or, or, or emptiness, uh, to a large extent, that would be the one kind of experience that you would say you could only have in retrospect. But it depends on what you mean by experience. Because in terms of being fully conscious at the time that it happened, uh, that, you, you, that, that is possible. What is, but there is no you that's having the experience, but immediately afterwards there comes into being once again a you that had the experience, and also a you that takes the recollection of the experience as its object. And so it's known and interpreted and understand retrospectively. Um, everything else can be known either directly or so close to being directly that it doesn't really matter, but most of the time it isn't. Most of the time, and this is, this is what we're doing when we're trying to develop uh, mindfulness, when we're trying to develop conscious awareness that uh, is just immediately present with what's happening, is get to that place of real-time experiencing. Before we cultivate that ability, we're always looking out the back window. Uh, basically, we're always listening to the story, that the ongoing story we're telling about what just happened. You know? And so that's what we're trying to do in terms of being in the present, being fully mindful, developing introspective awareness, is get to that place where we're experiencing our life in real time. And, and that, that's what's very special about that. Um, what, happen, what you will find in your meditation is that you know, our capacity for consciousness is limited. We can only be conscious of so much in any one moment. 
which is why our attention is always moving around, you know, to, to, to exercise that limited capacity in the best, most useful way. But the, in, the, in the practice, our capacity for conscious awareness will expand and become increased, become more powerful. And so initially we'll have the experience that um, to the degree that we're focused on one thing, we can't really be aware of, of anything else. What changes as our awareness expands is that we can have that, that quality that I call introspective awareness. The mind continues, can continue to be focused the attention can be centered on whatever you happen to place it, but the awareness can encompass more of the real-time reality of what is going on in your mind, moment by moment, as as your mind is doing that. And at first it seems like, well, I've either got to, to look at my object or look at myself, you know, and I'm going back and forth and I can't see both at once. But then you come to the point where you're kind of standing back and and you're really observing your mind, and, you, and no matter what your mind is doing. So at that point, you can be single-pointedly focused on the sensations of the breath of the nose, and aware of your mind, whether nothing else is happening or whether other things are happening. Of course, at that point that you can do that, you no longer need to pay attention to a single object. The, the purpose that was originally being served by keeping bringing your attention back to the sensation of the breath of the nose is no longer necessary. Now that you have this kind of awareness, and now that it's stable, and you're not going to get lost in the first thing that comes by, you can let go of the fixed object, and you can just be aware of whatever happens to come along. Or of, of the mind itself and the gaps between uh, things coming along. So, short answer is that depending on what you mean by experience, uh, we normally do not, but we are capable of experiencing uh, everything in real time rather than retrospectively. Uh, except, once again, depending on how you define experience, we might ex- have to exclude from that ultimate reality. Nirvana. So when you say we're, we're usually looking at the translation, it's not something as gross. When you're saying mostly what we're working with, especially early on, is is our, our translation of the story about the experience we're having, kind of this lag, where we're lagging behind the actual experience and having to go through our, our little internal translator. Is that are you talking? You're not just talking about how we put it into personal story and all that, but also are you talking about just perception itself, like the. Mm-hmm. Not like as opposed to being aware directly of sense experience, we're translating it into some kind of perception. Yeah, I, I mean that too. Uh, yes. First of all, and, and by all means, do this, all of you, right away. Notice that, you know, okay, we'll, we'll take the, the. What happens is a sensation arises and then your mind identifies it based on past experience. So there's a conceptual process. So you understand that that takes place continuously. Now, what I'd like you to notice is that you are not consciously aware of most of the actual sensation 
in a particular act of observation. If we were to, if we could cut out a strip of the mental film of what you were conscious of in a given period of time, you were conscious of the sensation here and conscious of the sensation there and conscious of the sensation there, and everything in between was filled in by your your mental fabrication process. Just checking in on the sensations often enough to alter that uh, that image uh, as necessary. And you miss a lot in that process because, and so um, most of the time we're living in the world that our mind projects to explain the sensations that it occasionally checks in on. And this is this is a well-known fact and easily demonstrated. All uh, all stage magic, all camouflage. Uh, famous techniques that people have for becoming invisible and doing all all of this is based on the fact that most of the time uh, we're watching the movie in our mind, not what's really happening in front of us. Um, now, you, added, you you mentioned the narrative. You see that this is a narrative part of it. You also mentioned earlier that you said sometimes that a lot of times it doesn't seem like you're uh, really, it, it's really talk that's taking place. It's sort of subverbal. But um, I expect if you examine that, you'll find that actually there's a lot of very rapid verbal kind of thinking going on, or verbal symbolic thinking. It may not always be in complete uh, sentences with uh, ordinary syntax and things like that. But you see, the reason that we can think as well as we do is that with the capacity for language and this collection of symbols that we call words allows us to think, you know, orders of magnitude faster than we could just based on, on the concepts that they represent. The concepts are these huge, complex, bulky things that are connected to all kinds of other things. And as a matter of fact, it's hard to really say where one concept ends and the ones it's connected to begins. And so to think, we can think in concepts, and we do think in concepts, but it's a different kind of thinking, and it's a much more, you know, but the rapid kind of thinking that we do, even if we're not consciously aware of it as verbal, is, is still the mind manipulating verbal symbols mm-hmm. to think so quickly. Yeah, and it is really rapid. I mean, it's true, it's more reactive. But, yeah. Yeah. And so... That's going on all the time, and it's being recorded in such a way that we can bring up the story of what just happened or what happened yesterday, or of who we are or who we think we are. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On Sunday, there was a loud clicking that was taking place. And, and uh, finally, I, I, I think I deduced that it was part of the cooling system. Uh, but uh, I was sitting there meditating, and I'm hearing this clicking, and I'm getting really pissed. <laughs> and I like, did this whole story in my head about how, you know, there was, there was this lady sitting in back, and she came in just to bust chops, 
and, and she shouldn't be there, and she's like periodically just, it was like 41 second intervals, you know, I started counting the dancing, and, and then I look at what I'm doing, and the clicking didn't bother me anymore. Yeah. intentions that did come up and that is a part of this you see if you are mindful of your intentions and this is a very important practice and so whenever you have the chance to do it in your daily life but especially it's, it's really it's much easier to do when you're in retreat and you're sitting and your mind's calm and then you get up and you're you know like doing your your chores and eating and things like that is every action, of course, is preceded by an intention, and there's a lot of decisions that that you make as to this or that. And so it gives you an opportunity to watch. And what, if you watch that, what you'll discover is that these intentions just mysteriously materialize. They just appear, uh, and they're there. Um, And... You'll catch yourself in the act of appropriating these attentions that arise and creating the the myth that I decided or I intended. You know, but in that kind of when your mindfulness is really good and when you start being mindful of intentions and watching them, you say you realize that the. There's nobody that I can see who is making these decisions and and giving rise to these intentions. They're coming from some mysterious back room of the mind. Yeah. Would that be analogous to breathing? I'm breathing automatically. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to intend to breathe, and I don't stop. Well, it's yeah, it is. I, I, it's very analogous to breathing in that. When we're doing all kinds of other things and we don't think about breathing at all, mm-hmm. we still continue to breathe. And there, and our mind is processing information and based on past experience and, and uh, previously set intentions and all these other kinds of things. It's making moment-by-moment decisions and it's generating intentions moment-by-moment automatically. And uh, we mostly don't notice that process. It's like breathing. But, you know, we can breathe deliberately. Right. We sometimes do breathe deliberately. Or we can become aware of the breathing happening naturally. And it's the same way. Sometimes we find ourselves in a position of deliberately making decisions. Uh, uh, and sometimes we can put ourselves in that place of just watching the process as it happens. Even 
even when we're deliberately making decisions, it's always very interesting to watch what happens in the mind. Because although in, in terms of the usual narrative that we have is that, well, I thought about it and I realized that uh, this, but then I also knew that that, and so, well, what I decided to do was so-and-so. But when we watch what happens in our mind, an intention to do one thing comes up, and then there's an intention to do something different comes up, and then there's uh, the, the, then there's kind of a struggle between these two, and then there may be other thoughts and emotions and things that come in and interact with it, and so eventually it's more like you know it's like a a, a group of people uh, with different opinions trying to come to a consensus. And what you finally decide to do really represents uh, a moment of consensus. And it's not always democratic consensus. Sometimes it's just one of those inner voices happen to outshout all the rest. And a short time later, you're really regretting that that, that voice won. On that topic, because you talked about that a little bit before, um, I mean, I, I've noticed and I've thought about the fact that it seems like when I have to do work, like anything, quote, work, it's work because there are those parts of my mind that don't want to do it, and there's the parts that are forward-thinking that do want to do it, and the whole thing that makes it unpleasant is that conflict, that internal conflict, and I'm wondering, I think you've used this language, if the part of what comes out of the, the recognition of not-self and impermanence and, and suffering is that suddenly the mind goes into com- like everything's integrated. And is that is that what the experience? I mean, is that part of the experience? Or am I completely? I may be completely off base, but that the mind's now operating as kind of a single concept, or is it still well, chaotic that you're not as what what will make your mind function in an integrated fashion? is what you have to do uh, to understand what's happening right now is these different impulses have different motivations. And if you look and see what the root motivations are, uh, there is all some, there's some degree of, uh, of desire and aversion and ignorance. Some mix of those which is behind each of these different, you know, so some part of you really doesn't want to do your work. You'd rather do something else instead. And another part of you uh, is saying, no, we've got to do this. And if you look at those, you know, uh, both of those motivations, if you, if you get to the root of both of those motivations, they have some mixture of desire and aversion and confusion, and they may have some also some, some wholesome and unwise components to them as well. So if you recognize that your mind is a whole big collection of processes, all with different agendas to fulfill, all with different programs that they're operating on, inevitably they're going to end up in conflict with each other. And if the basis for all of the for all of these different programs is uh, largely unwholesome motivations like uh, satisfying certain kinds of desires 
or, or uh, acting out certain kinds of aversions, uh, or so forth. Uh, there, there is no end in, in sight to this conflict. How do you ever resolve it? If you can purify the mind of these uh, unwholesome uh, roots for action, then automatically the end result of that is going to be that these different mental processes are, uh, although they still have uh, their own specific agendas, uh, the root drivers are now much more in, in harmony and in synchrony with each other. And so there's going to be a whole lot less conflict. And so then you're going to start functioning more, in, at, at more as if you really were an integrated self, which is actually a topic I, I thought about through uh, a series of classes on soul creation. You have no self. But you can create a really good facsimile that will make you. <laughs> but when when this mind that we are can be brought into a state of harmony, internal cooperation, uh, internal coherence, uh, uh, when you can eliminate. Uh, to, if, if not entirely, at least a, to a great degree, all of these conflicting inner drives, then the result is peace of mind, clarity of purpose, you know, and uh, life becomes enormously simpler and, and more pleasant to live. Yeah. yeah, I I understand that the conflict, but um, in my experience. I just about always know what the better thing to do. Mm-hmm. The, the, the debate is whether I'm going to choose that or do what you're talking about in, in, in pursuing some gratification, mm-hmm. you know, meeting some need that isn't, okay. isn't as good. But it sounds like using purification and integrity together at the same time, having the integrity to make the right decision. Uh, well, yes, yeah, you, you have to. Yeah, you have to have. See, that's why the, we start the practice. The basis of the practice is uh, is morality, virtue, and coming to understand, developing right view, uh, recognizing that, uh, recognizing the role that desire and aversion are playing in all of our. Mental processes and all of our actions, and and the suffering that comes out of the conflicts that are there. Mm-hmm. It's uh, recognizing that that life is unsatisfactory. It's unsatisfactory because we're filled with a craving for things to be different. And if we could get rid of that craving, then we could still go out and go through the world changing things. But now we won't feel miserable about the way things are. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> There's something I've noticed happening a, a few times to me during meditation. Uh, <clears throat> I'll be thinking, and then I'll, I'll realize that I'm thinking, and it, it'll be something like, I've asked myself a question, and I'm about to answer it. And then I'll realize that, oops, I'm not meditating. But then I'll get worried and say, well, 
I have to answer the question before I can get back to meditating. And then I'll say, wait a minute, I don't have to do that at all. I can, I can go right back to meditating, which was, comes, comes as a great relief. Yeah. And uh, uh, what, uh, going from that state of worriedness to doing it, I say, no, I can go back to the meditation right now. I don't have to. But, you know, in retrospect, it's kind of amusing. But, uh, but I've noticed that happening to, to me more than once. <coughs> That's because you're an academic, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's an academic disease. <laughs> She's an academic. <laughs> yeah, that is. It's a, it is. A, it's it's a relief to discover at any level that you don't have to fulfill all these compulsions that all these different parts of your mind feel are. I mean, for whatever part of your for whatever mental process that's dominant in the moment, it's basically going to say to the rest of the mind, this is the most important thing that we've got going right now. Mm -hmm. And of course, if there's another one that's even close to as prominent, it's going to answer back, oh, no, it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) In in, uh, 12-step recovery... They call that the itty bitty shitty committee. Yeah. Well, and that's a really good thing for it. That's 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 I I agree with that name. Very, you know, the 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 self that we think we are is is uh, is more like a committee made up of very quarrelsome individuals. 